What's the difference between good religion and bad religion? And no, we're not talking about the 1980s punk rock band. The religion we're talking about is at the end of chapter 1 in the book of James, where James talks about a religion that's worthless, a religion that, as we read in the book of Amos, God calls a stench that he hates and despises. Well, Chris is going to show us what that bad religion looks like, as well as showing us what good religion looks like. And you might be surprised by what he says. Here's Chris. Well, good morning. Welcome back to James. We are in our sixth week in James, and we are still in chapter one. Are we having fun or what? You guys are loving this. So go ahead and get your Bibles out. Uh, if you're new with us, we are doing a study through James. You can find the first five installments of this on our website, completely free to watch. Encourage you to do so. Uh, and if you have a Bible with you, open it up to James. There's an index in the front of the Bible. It will help you get there if you don't know how to find James, and that's perfectly okay. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, well, we've got Bibles out in the lobby. I encourage you to pick one up. Um, James, as we've said in previous weeks, but this is for the folks who are new with us this week, James is kind of basic training for being a Christian. It is practical application of the teachings of Jesus that we find in the Sermon on the Mount and other places. And uh, I'm here to tell you, if you will apply each and every one of these principles to your life and the, and the things that James teaches us, it will change your life in good ways. And so that's why we're taking all this time because it's so jam-packed with just practical, not advice, but the teachings of Jesus on how to live a victorious, powerful uh, life that is a witness for God uh, and uh, brings, brings better relationships and everything else. So that's where we are. That's what we're doing. We're going to be in uh, James 1, 26 and 27. So uh, two verses today, uh, and there's so much here. So let's, uh, you guys ready? Let's, let's dive in. James 1, 26 says this, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Now, this is pretty harsh, right? So if you've got an out-of-control tongue problem or, uh, you know, or kind of a you don't have control over your anger because we really are in the context of anger still. Uh, so I know we're breaking this down into a couple verses at a time, or we have to this point, but the, uh, you know, James wrote this as a letter. It was kind of a continuous thought. They didn't even have chapter one, chapter two, chapter three originally. I mean, has anybody ever written a letter that's chapter one? I'm thinking a little more of yourself than you should if you have. All right, so James probably didn't either. There were no, no numbers uh, associated with it. He's writing a letter that's a continual thought or it's a, it's a progressive thought. And so, you know, back in verse 19, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be, you guys remember this, quick to listen, slow to speak, and what? Slow to become angry. And really what he was dialing in on is anger you know, our, our quickness to speak, our slowness to listen leads to anger, but if we can reverse that, we can be slow to anger because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And so James really is still wrestling with the same thought, this expression of out, out, uh, outrage or, or rage, you know, uh, letting it rip. And what he's saying is that does not accomplish the purposes of God. 
It does not reflect well upon you. It does not reflect well upon his kingdom. Uh, it, uh, it undermines your faith. And he says, your religion is worthless, which sounds really, really harsh. But James is making very, very clear this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And why is he doing that? Because we tend to discount our faults, don't we? We tend to downplay them and go, oh, well, God has to forgive me. It's not that big a deal. I don't have this under control. But you know what? It's only like once a month that I blow up or maybe once every, every six months or something that I blow up. So it's not that big a deal, and I'm just going to ignore it and, uh, and pretend that it's not there. And then when I, I mess up, I'm going to ask God for forgiveness. Now, will God forgive you? Absolutely, he will. But James is making absolutely clear this is a big deal. This is a big deal, and it needs to be addressed. It's not okay just to let this go and just pretend like, nah, God will have to forgive me, and God will forgive you. But the collateral damage to people and the collateral damage to God's kingdom is so significant that you cannot allow this to go unaddressed. You have to deal with this. Now, for those of us that deal with anger issues, that's a heavy thing, right? We might even feel a bit out of control. And I think what Jesus would say is, do whatever it takes. Like, it, not that you're going to get it perfect, but you have got to address this, not entertain it in your life. You have to stop. And James goes so far as saying, your religion is worthless. You know, I, I think the Apostle Paul would put it this way. You can follow all the rules. You can have profound spiritual gifts. You can understand Scripture and all the mysteries of the Bible. You can give everything you have away to the poor. And, uh, but if your life is out of control, if your anger is out of control, the way Paul would put it, if you don't have love, it is what? Worthless. It's a clanging gong. This is a big deal. What this is is a wake-up call for people who deal with anger and outbursts in their lives, which would be every parent in this room, right? 1 Corinthians 13.1, it says, If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but if I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. This is a big, hairy deal. Now, is there a hope for the person with anger issues? Absolutely. Does God have mercy and, and grace for us? Of course he does. But if we allow this to continue in our lives and not take it seriously and not understand how significant it is, if we continue to make excuses, well, it's that big a deal, James is saying. Now, what James is, is, is laying out here in these two verses is he, he's kind of comparing and contrasting bad religion with good religion. And it's interesting because the word religion in the Bible 
Um, it's a Greek, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the word for religion in the New Testament is threskos. Can you say threskos? We'll say it together. Threskos. All right, threskos is never uh, written in a positive connotation in the New Testament. Like religion is not really what this is about. It's not a positive thing. It's certainly not what Jesus was about. You know, Jesus, when he talked about the religious leaders, and when he went toe-to-toe with the religious leaders, he, he was not pleased with what they were doing. They were, they were religious. And religion is really a series of rules and rituals and things that we must do or not do. And if we can not do the things we're not supposed to do and do all the things that we are supposed to do and we have our rituals and our... our um, are the rules that we follow, then God has to accept us. That's religion. Jesus wasn't about that at all. We were not created for religion. And in fact, religion will rot your soul. Religion, would, here's the deal. You were made in the image of God to be in a relationship with God. And that's what Jesus was all about. Not religion, not rules and, and ritual, but the condition of your heart, and the presence of God in your heart. That's what you were made for. Theologians describe it as we have this God-shaped hole or this God-shaped void in our heart that only he can fill. And that's what fills the empty inside of us. That's what our lives were created for, to be in this relationship, this personal conversational connection with God. And that's what Jesus was about. not working our way through do's, don'ts, and and rituals to God. Now, here's what I know about some of you. Some of you come from a very religious background, and religion is hard to get free from. It, like, it, it, it's, there's a lot of guilt associated with it. There's a lot of, a, a, a lot of bad thinking that you got to unlearn if you've learned it along the way. But I need you to understand what we do here, what Jesus did throughout the New Testament was not religion. It was relationship. My predecessor um, here at, at the Vineyard, who was the lead pastor before I was for 23 years, his name was John Raz, and he's, pastors always have kind of, you know, a, f- a couple phrases that they go back to over and over again. I've got a couple myself. But one of his was, religion is a bad deal. Some of you will remember that if you were around back in the day. Religion is a bad deal because religion comes, again, with rules and burden and guilt. It does not set us free, but a relationship with God changes things in here. It sets us free. It brings brings liberty and life to us. And so as as James refers to religion, he's like, this is, this, is, this is bad religion, right? And then in verse 27, he says, good religion, religion that, the, that God our Father accepts. So he's not really meaning religion, but, but you know what he's saying. He's saying this is what, what good faith looks like, is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows. In other words, to help the helpless in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world, to not live like the world around us. That's good religion. Now, he, he, 
uses the word religion here, but he's kind of turning the definition on its head. You know, he's, he's... So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at what bad religion is because I think there are some of us that need to get free from that. I want to deconstruct that. And then I want to take a little bit of time at the end and look at what good religion is, what that looks like, what a relationship with God lived out looks like because of what he is doing and has done inside of our, our hearts. Sound good? Yep, for the ride? All right, pull out your notes, and we're going to pull apart bad religion. So what does bad religion look like? First, bad religion is when I have a religious life with a weaponized tongue. It's when I have a religious life with a weaponized tongue. This is what James is addressing. When my tongue is out of control, you know, I can go to church every week, I read my Bible every day, I pray regularly, might have, you know, multiple spiritual gifts or whatever, but my, my mouth is out of control, and my mouth is an overflow of my heart, of course. Now, when he wrote this, Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet, so... so um, Today, we take even, we have another layer between us and the things that we say, right? Our keyboard and our monitor. We feel even more empowered to just let it rip, to, to let people know what, what, how they're wrong and why they're wrong, you know, and that would be a post on, on social media or an email sent without really letting ourselves cool off first. And we do feel so much more liberated to just rail on people online. Um, and we think because we're right, we can be a jerk. And that's whether that's face-to-face -face or online. But your theological correctness, your being right about whatever the topic is, is not a justification to be unloving. It's not. And Jesus said very clearly, our words reflect what is in our hearts. It's an overflow of our hearts. It's a, it's a you know, a tree is known by its fruit, right? So our fruit are the things that come out of our mouths. If a tree has apples hanging off of it, what kind of tree is it? This is easy. It's an apple tree. Lemons? Lemon tree, right. So if I have all kinds of nasty posts online and my mouth is, uh, is overflowing with poison, my heart is poisonous, right? And this is a hard issue because that's what it's all about. The Lord's presence comes and lives in our hearts. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. All right. So this is, this is not just, hey, this is a behavior that I'm having an issue with, the issue with. This is an overflow of what's truly going on inside of me, and that's a problem. Number two, bad religion. This is closely related to number one. It's when I have theological, or when I love theological correctness more than I love people. I'm right. So again, I have the right to be a jerk. And, you know, I, I have been a Christian for a very long time. Uh, it'll be 50, 50 years 
in, in two years. Um, and so that's a long time. And I've watched over the course of, of those almost 50 years, I've watched people act in very ungodly ways in the name of God. Maybe you, you have too. You know, the, the, the church truth warriors who feel like they've got, they've got an obligation to be a jerk because they've got the truth figured out and they've got to correct everybody, right? I remember back in the day, um, back when uh, the Purpose Driven Life book came out, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. Excellent book. Highly recommend the book. I do not agree with everything that Rick Warren says. I want to be clear about that. But Rick is a good guy, and that book is exceptional. And um, I remember when that came out, there were certain people who, Christian leaders, who were like, oh, Rick's a heretic, and, and they attacked Rick Warren. And they attacked a bunch of other pastors, too. I remember there was a guy who put together a, a whole seminar, and he would go around from church to church and teach this seminar to people that basically explained why Rick Warren was a heretic. I'm like, really? Like, you're going to tear apart other, other Christian leaders over stuff that's, you know, secondary issues at best? Our theological correctness oftentimes, and our love for that, turns us into to people who don't like people. We like our theology more than we like people, and we're missing the point at that point. And, and, and James says the religion is worthless. Now listen to me. There is a danger as you walk with Christ. There's a danger? Yes, there's a danger, and it has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with you. But as you learn, as you grow, as you become more acquainted with Scripture, as you mature spiritually speaking, you can fall in love with religion and grow to hate people. Why? Because our, our knowledge can produce arrogance. Now, does this mean we don't learn, that we don't grow, that God doesn't want us learning his word, that he doesn't want us uh, engaging in, in, in groups and in, in, in life groups and, and coming to church and reading the Bible and all those things? No, absolutely, he wants us to grow and learn, and, all, of, and those, all those things will make you better as you go. But we have to guard our hearts because we can get full of ourselves and our knowledge and begin to hate people. This is the Pharisees of Jesus' day. This is what happened. They knew the Bible better than I know the Bible, better than you know the Bible, and yet they missed Jesus standing right in front of them. And they really did kind of look down on and despise the common people, you know, and they didn't, didn't really want them to have access to God the way they had access to God. And their hearts were seared towards the very people they were supposed to be leading to God. Guys, we have to guard our hearts against this. We can't, you know, we can't allow the love in our hearts to grow cold. And knowledge can puff up, can it? Knowledge can puff up. So we have to guard our hearts. It doesn't mean we don't value knowledge and growing. It means we protect our hearts and make sure, check daily, that they're full of love towards people. 
You know, one of the things I've noticed is, is a lot of times people, as they become a little more arrogant in their faith, they look, look around at the world and go, well, you know, isn't the world a mess, you know, and, and uh, all those people. And, yeah, when you start hearing those words coming out of your mouth, you know you're on dangerous ground. All right. So, but aren't there topics worth defending? Absolutely. You know, there are things that are absolutely crystal clear in the Bible that we, you know, that, that are true, that Christians agree on across denominations. And, a, you know, a lot of those are found in the Apostles' Creed. These are things that are universally true. We know these things are true. And when people start trying to deconstruct those things, we, we need to say something for sure in love. But we need to say something. But here's a basic rule of thumb. If, if a theological topic is not crystal clear in the Bible... If a theological topic is not crystal clear in the Bible, it is not worth fighting about. Does that make sense? There's a lot. And in fact, most of the things that Christians will argue with one another about, either online or in person, now online more than, than not, are not crystal clear. They're kind of a, a mystery in the Bible. One, one, you know, just a few examples. So um, for about 2,000 years now, Christians have debated back and forth whether or not we have free will to choose, like we, we can make choices along the way and it impacts what God is, God's decisions and how he interacts with us and, and all of that, or whether everything is predestined and God already knows how it's all going to go and we don't really get to choose. Anybody ever wrestle with that topic? If you haven't, consider yourself blessed. It's kind of a, it's an interesting world. All right, so, so you've got people over here going, everything is predestined over here. Everything is free will. And, uh, you know, if you go to the Bible and you read not just the verses, but the, the narratives along the way, what you will find is there are verses and narratives that really, God knows everything. He's got it all figured out from the beginning of time. He knows the beginning from the end, and he lives outside of time, and everything's predestined. And then if you read some others, you go, but we get to make choices, and we have free will. And it's both, the both are in the Bible. But what you'll have is Christians will dial down on one or the other and go and start to defend it and throw rocks at people in the other camp. And churches have divided, whole movements have gone in different directions over that topic. Now, is it okay to have an opinion? Absolutely. And we have people in, our, in this church who are probably fall in both camps. I personally am in the middle somewhere which is an unresolvable position, right? It's like, well, we do have free will, but God does. The, it's somehow both, but it's a mystery, and I'm all right living in the mystery. That's my personal opinion. But I'm not going to fight with you about it because it's not crystal clear. You know, baptism is a, is a topic like this. I have an opinion about baptism, but I'm not going to fight with you on it. You know, some churches sprinkle, we dunk, right? And I can explain to you why we dunk. Come to the baptism class, get baptized, and I'll explain why we don't, right? But I'm not going to fight with people because we see, we see both, right? We see, we see, a, 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 and if you're leading people to Jesus and baptizing them, I'm cheering for you. I'm not fighting with you, okay? Um, one of the big ones of my lifetime has been on the second coming of Christ. 
One thing that we're absolutely clear on is Jesus is coming back. You know, at the end of the Terminator movie, Jesus said, I'll be back. <laughs> he said, I'm coming back. Right? We know he's coming back, but we don't know what that's going to look like exactly. And the, the other thing that we know is there's a period of, of suffering that the Bible calls the tribulation, or theologians call it tribulation, that's going to happen at the end of days. Some people think we're living in it right now. So, um, and there are verses that would indicate that we're going to be, the, the believers, the Christians are going to be taken up before the tribulation. They're called pre-tribulationists or pre-tribbers for sure. There's other, other scripture that indicates it's the middle of the tribulation that's going to happen. They're mid-tribbers and others post-tribbers, right? Guys, back in the 70s and 80s, denominations divided over this. Like, I'm camped out on pre-trib and I'm throwing rocks at post-tribbers, you know? And it's like, guys, the scripture is not 100% crystal clear on this. There's God intentionally left mystery in the Bible so that we couldn't figure it all out so that we would remain humble. I think that's why anyway. That's my... And you're like, well, what does the vineyard believe? Well, I don't know what the vineyard believes personally on that one, and it's just my opinion. I'm a pan-tribber, which means I believe it all pans out in the end. We'll figure it out. <laughs> figure it out when we get there. What I know is Jesus said, focus on helping people find and follow God, and you're not going to know exactly when I'm coming back, but don't worry, I got this. So let's focus on helping people find and follow God. But what I know as a father is I hate it when my kids fight. You know, when they're, they're riding in the back, when they were smaller, riding in the back of the car, deuces on my side of the car. Stop it. Just cut it out. Get along. We're a family. Are there issues of heresy that need to be addressed? Of course. And we need to do that in a loving way. But most of the stuff that Christians fight about, like, let's, we didn't, don't need to be fighting about. That's bad religion. Three. Bad religion is when I think religious activities can save me. Anybody ever see The Godfather? The movie The Godfather? I can't recommend it in church, but I recommend it. So, that's <clears throat> just, ADD is a terrible thing. All right, so in The Godfather, you got, you got The Godfather. He's a bad dude. He's a criminal. He's a gangster, mobster. He's killed all these people, continues to kill all these people. He's got all this all this bad organized crime stuff going on, but he makes a contribution to the, you know, the church, and he gets this piece of paper from the bishop that says, hey, you made a contribution to the church, and because of that, all your sins are forgiven, and you're getting into heaven. And if you want one of those, you can write the check out to Chris Figaretti. I just, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> because I am Sicilian, so I, you know, I can do that. Um, no, it, God will not be played, guys. Do you think God's stupid? Like we can just do whatever we want, go live a mobster life, and then make a donation or show up at church and somehow God's not going to know what's going on? He's not stupid. And he doesn't do religion. But we think, well, I've got my, I've got my, my ritual, so I'm covered. You know, for some of us, that's reading our Bible every day. You're like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. Did you know that nowhere in the Bible 
does it say you have to read the Bible every day? And that for 1,500 years before the Gutenberg Press, between Jesus and the Gutenberg Press, 99% of the people didn't have a Bible to read every day? And it all worked out. Now, that being said, would I make a case that spending a little bit of time in God's Word every day, since we have access to it and it is so profound and powerful, is a great idea and a good thing to do and it will shape the way you see the world and it will make you a better person and more like the person that you want to be and, and bring you closer to God? Yes, I would say all those things, but nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to read it every day. And in fact, for some of us, we've made that a religion. And it's our checklist. And if we don't read it every day, we feel guilty. And if that's you, you need to stop reading the Bible. Just stop reading the Bible for the next month. And then come back to it. Come back to it, not out of an obligation and a ritual, but out of a awe for what, the gift that God has given us and a desire to become the kind of person that he wants you to be. But if it's become religion to you, it's not doing you any good. It's just, a, it's just a ritual. I get calls sometimes from grandparents. Their, their kids have had kids, and, and they're like, i got to get my grandbaby baptized. Because if they, you know, I mean, they got to get baptized because I want them to go to heaven if something happens. And I'm like, that's a ritual. Now, is baptism a good thing? Yes. Is, is, is the baby endangered? No. God, I mean, they're, God doesn't hold a baby accountable for what a baby can't be held accountable for. But it's like, well, I got this ritual thing, and if I get that checked off, then the baby's good. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Some of us, we think because we're in church every Sunday, that's our ritual. God's got to, you know, I'm here every Sunday, so God's got to, you know, he's got to be on my side. And God's like, no, I kind of want you on my side all week long, like your life, not just going to the church service. In the book of Amos, chapter 5, verse 21, this is what God said to the Israelites who were playing the same games. He said this, I hate, this is, this is so encouraging, are you right? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me or bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. Come and sing worship songs on Sunday and then go live like hell the rest of the week. Get out of my house. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. Help the helpless. Do what is right. Live a right life is what he's saying. So God makes it very clear. We can jump through all the hoops, but if we live a disobedient life, a life that's disconnected from him at a heart level, and it's not affecting the way we actually live, He's not interested. We can come and sing our songs, but if we're disobeying all week long, showing up at church, that's just religion at that point. It's not going to help you. Fourth thing, bad religion, when I add rules that aren't in the Bible. Bad religion is when I add rules that aren't in the Bible. We call this legalism. 
And legalism is toxic. Legalism is when we think God didn't put enough rules in the Bible, so I need to make up a couple more to make sure I don't, in fact, um, you know, cross God's line. And, and, and I need to apply it to everybody else. Right? And legalism is oppressive and terrible. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. You know, one of the things that Jesus got so frustrated with the religious leaders about is they, they had taken God's law and they had built all these rules and regulations around it to keep people far enough away from God's law that there's no way they could ever accidentally cross God's lines. And Jesus is like, enough of that. And Jesus was accused of breaking, breaking their laws, but he was just basically breaking their man-made laws, not God's law. You know, rules about the Sabbath and whatnot. We are not to add to God's law. And God does not need our help, guys. Extra rules can never make you more godly. Colossians 2, 21 through 23 says this, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have, have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They don't keep us away. And what happens is the more legal, this has been my observation anyway, when I, we see people who are caught up in legalism, it's like the more they pretend, the more they pretend, the more they pretend, and then something gives and they just run past all of it and right off the cliff. Because we were not meant to live under all of that. The thing about legalism is it always starts with the best of intentions. It always starts with a, you know, based on a Bible verse. It's based on the Bible. It's just not found in the Bible. You know what I'm talking about? Like you have to read your Bible every day. Well, there are all kinds of good reasons. You know, that's the Word of God. It's, you know, uh, a light to my, a lamp to my feet. There's all kinds of things that I can come to you with that would suggest that reading your Bible every day is about the smartest thing that you could possibly do, and it is. But nowhere does it say you have to read it every day, and if you don't, you should feel guilty because God doesn't love you. Doesn't say that. Or, you know. <laughs> There are some streams of Christianity that would, would say, well, uh, dancing is off limits. Dancing is sin, right? Can we get a beat going? No, I'm just kidding. Um, where does that come from? Well, what we know is in the, in the Scripture, Jesus makes very clear lust is a bad thing. We don't want to be lustful, Right? And so at some point, somebody said, well, lust is a bad thing, and if you dance, you could lust, and if you... So dancing, not good. Everybody shouldn't dance. Even though we have David dancing before the Lord in his underwear in the Old Testament. You know, I mean, it's like you got to completely blow by that. I was going to strip down to my underwear and dance for you all, but I'm not going to. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, this sermon is over, right? I mean... <laughs> You guys have gotten 
Where did that come from? All right, so, um, sorry, Mom. Um, nowhere in the Bible does it say dancing is a sin. But what we do is, well, God needs our help. We need an extra rule here, an extra rule there, and, we, we, and then we apply it to everybody else, and we're all living underneath this pile of rules that aren't ever in the Bible or given to us by God. Alcohol. The Bible makes it very clear. Drunkenness is a sin. As a follower of Jesus, we are not to get drunk, Right? Well, some well-meaning person said, well, if we're not to get drunk, then we probably shouldn't touch alcohol. So then alcohol is off limits and is, is a sin. Right? But it never doesn't say that in the Bible. It doesn't say that anywhere. In fact, and we have to negate the fact that Jesus turned 180 gallons of water into 180 gallons of wine at a wedding celebration to get there from here. Now, that's legalism. But every time I talk about alcohol, I have to say this. If you cannot touch alcohol without going down a drunken path, then wisdom would dictate for you, alcohol needs to be off limits, right? Because you're going to end up where you don't want to be. But that's for you. Don't put that on other people. That's yours. And we all have areas of our lives, those of us who struggle with lust, maybe we shouldn't dance. I don't know, but that's between you and God, and you need to figure that out to keep your heart right. Don't put it on other people. When we start putting rules in our faith that God didn't put in the Bible, we are in trouble. That is legalism. And then in verse 27, he shifts to good religion. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Like our faith lived out, God's spirit in us lived out in, our, in how we live is going to look something like this. We're going to care for the helpless. We're going to help the helpless. And I just want to give you just, I'm just going to machine gun a couple uh, verses here that just back up so much. This is at the very heart of God and who he is. Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 21, 13, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Proverbs 31, 9, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. First John 3, 16 through 18, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then in verse 17, he explains how. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. God's heart for the helpless is huge. It's at the very core of who he is, and it's at the very core of who he wants us to be. And when his love is in our hearts, this is what overflows. We care about others. We care about those who can't care for themselves. Now, 
I know some of you are going, but yeah, there's some caveats around this, right? And there are. There are. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. The Apostle Paul famously, and a lot of people like to camp out on this one, if a man will not work, let him not eat. Well, what about that, Chris? Well, I think that's true. I mean, what Paul is saying, what James is addressing are widows and orphans, and in their culture, widows and orphans were uh, helpless. They were completely dependent on the, the generosity and the care of their families. They had, there was no social safety and that there was nothing there for them. But what Paul's saying is if, if somebody is capable of working, they're not going to work, then they don't eat. You know, in the Old Testament, God set up this, this plan, I guess if you want to call it that, but he, he instructed the people of Israel when they go out and harvest their fields to leave some around the edges so that the poor would have something to pick. It was called gleaning. And they would come. And so he, he even builds this idea of, of, of generosity and care for the least into their, their agricultural laws. But he also built in a sense of now you've got to come out and actually pick the food, so you've got to do the work. But I think what we do oftentimes, and this is, this is just a kind of the nature of making life all about us, is we'll, we'll camp out on this one verse that was written for the lazy and use it as, as an excuse to close our hearts to the needy and to the helpless. And God has a huge heart for the helpless. And as we follow him, if we're growing, we're not going to grow in anger. We're going to grow in love and compassion. Proverbs 29.7 says this, The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. I just need to, this is kind of a little sidebar conversation, but I feel like at this, this juncture I need to, so time out, we're just going to have a little sidebar conversation on this justice thing. One of the buzzwords that you'll hear in our wor world today is social justice. Has anybody heard social justice and social justice warriors? Um, the Bible is all about social justice. The problem is, is that what social justice has become is not what the Bible is about. Social justice that we read about in the Bible is care for the poor, the least, the broken. It's, it's, the, it's the social justice movement of the 1800s that led to the abolition of slavery in the United States of America. That was the church that led that movement. And it was a social justice movement. But in the in the 1930s, a group of philo atheist philosophers from Germany moved to America, set up shop at Cambridge University. I know you guys love these history lessons, but I'm a geek, so you're going to get it. So they set up shop at Columbia University and set up something called the Frankfurt School, and they hijacked social justice, and it's full of all kinds of atheistic and what I would consider demonic roots. And that's what social justice has become in our world today. And so I'm not, I don't have time to unpack all of this for you. I just want to make you aware. We care and help the widows and orphans. We care for the helpless. But we need to keep ourselves from getting mixed up with demonic ideologies, which critical social justice, which is what people talk about today, is. All right. Let's go back. 
Let's dive back in, just my little sidebar. Guys, we have to build into our lives concern and care for the poor and the helpless. Like, if that's not part of who you are, that needs to become part of it. I mean, James just makes it really, really clear. I mean, there's two things he gives us here, and this is one of them. At the very heart of God is help for the hopeless. And if we have everything else, we don't have this, we're missing a big part of what our faith is about. One of the reasons I hung out at the vineyard when I came here in 1994 one is it felt like home and people loved me, and I felt that right away. And uh, it's been that way ever since. The other was there was a heart for the least. And I love that about our church. You know, we're feeding kids on the streets of Costa Rica every day. For about 20 some years, we had a ministry called Mercy Ministry that was led by Fran and Don McAfee. And we would purchase truckloads of supplies that people couldn't buy with food stamps like soap and shampoo and toilet paper and diapers and things that you would need just to have basic human dignity, but you couldn't buy with food stamps. And we would set up in low-income communities a free store, and people could come and get these items for free. And we would pray for them, and we would listen to them, and we would minister to them. And that was a season of ministry that went on for about 23 years, I believe, that uh, was just amazing, but it was at the very heart of this church, the very heart of who God is, so kids could go to school without, with a shower and clean clothes. Now we express this, and we've got a whole group of people who started uh, during COVID a, a, a campus for homeless people in our community. Um, we got Be the Blessing every November, a whole Passel of people, and I did say passel, were ministering to kids over at Madison across the bridge here. And if the stories I could tell you, because it would be the equivalent of what James is talking about. And even the kids' center across the street, you know, that child care, daycare center, it's the working poor who are disproportionately impacted. So even, even that is an outgrowth of this heart that God has placed in his church. It's, I feel so honored to be standing on the shoulders of people who got that and put that into my heart, and I hope that it's in your heart too. Because James says, this is what good religion looks like. Second thing is, that James gives us is to live a life that is different from our world. Live a life that's different from the world. So much so we want to just blend in with the world around us. James is like, don't blend in with the world. Don't get corrupted by this world. You know, the Bible word for that is holy. Live a holy life. But holy has a lot of religious baggage with it. All it means is different, set apart. Don't look just like the world around you. Don't share the values of the world around you. Don't live by the same moral code as the world around you. He says, look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, I want to be clear. James is not talking about isolation. Nowhere in the New Testament are we encouraged to isolate ourselves from the world around us. Jesus, when he prayed for his disciples before he left, he said, God, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, 
protect them while they're in the world. Isolation is nowhere to be found in New Testament Christianity. If there's no contact, there can't be impact. And we are here to impact the world we live in. We are here to expand God's kingdom and to help people find and follow him. That's why we're here. We can't do that if we isolate ourselves. Believe me, it's tempting. I would love to live on a farm somewhere. I could, like, all the time, I, you know, when I get overwhelmed by what's going on in our world, I'll just go farm, 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 farm. You know, I just want to kind of haul up and live on, my, live on my farm and just, you know... But that's not an option that's open to us. We are to impact the world. And to impact the world, we have to be in contact with our world. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about living by Scripture, not by culture. Paul gets this really clear, hits a home run in Romans 12 too. He says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not be corrupted by the values of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How is our mind renewed? I'll give you two things. One, you have to read your Bible every day. Okay, no, I didn't mean that. But it, you know, seriously, reading God's Word is part of how we renew our minds. It's part of how we begin to think the way that God thinks because the, in His Word are His thoughts, Right? And then it's the Holy Spirit, inviting the Holy Spirit to bring that alive inside of us. That's how we renew our mind. We're not to conform to the pattern of this world. It's just re-saying what James said, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't be corrupted by this world. Our world tells us that it's all about us. It's all about you. Look out for number one. God's Word teaches us we are to live open-handed, generous lives and consider other people as important, if not more important, than ourselves. Our world tells us if somebody harms us or wrongs us, we get revenge. Jesus said, forgive and let it go. Our world kind of sticks their nose up or sticks its nose up at the least. God says to love and look out for. Our world says pursue sexual pleasure at any and all costs. And God's word says pursue sexual purity at any and all costs. Our world tells us do whatever you have to do to get ahead. God's word says be honest. Trust me for the results. God's word says, love your neighbor, look out for him. Now, here's what I know. None of us wants to be a hypocrite. We all kind of bristle against hypocrisy. You know, a hip hypocrite is someone who says, this is who I am, but then lives this way. And that's what James is saying. Don't live like a hypocrite. Don't just sing it. Don't just say it. Don't just read it and don't just believe it, but live it out. Live it out with outrageous love and compassion, with humility and grace, with love and with generosity, not separate from the world, 
but different from the world. And that's the kind of faith that God dreams about for you to live and for me to live. And I think if we were to be asked at our, our best moments, that's the kind of faith we all want to live, right? Nobody wants to be a hypocrite. But for some of us, we have been polluted by the world. James would say, well, okay, time to deal with that. For some of us, we've hardened our hearts against the helpless. James would say, it's time to deal with that. And for some of us, our mouths and our rightness is out of control to the point that we've lost our love. And I think James and God would say, today's a good day to deal with that. So as we sing these songs we're about to sing, I want you to invite the Spirit to do some work in your heart and show you what of this he wants to change in you today. And then give him permission to do that. Let's stand. Lord, Holy Spirit, we have no hope of changing without you at work in our hearts and in our lives. And so we invite you now to fill us, to minister to us, Lord, to convict us. And I do pray, God, where we have blind spots, that you would blow by those in this moment. God, that you would speak into our lives. Where we've become legalistic, Lord, or where we are, have allowed our hearts to grow hard or our love to grow cold or where we have turned our, our backs on the, on the helpless and the hopeless, Lord, where, where we've just allowed the world to infect our lives, our values, and our morality. God, would you speak? Would you speak? And God, would you bring us to a place of repentance so that we can live as the lights that you've created and called us to be and that our lives would not be full of hypocrisy but would be full of life and love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.